The second reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Hear the word of God. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, as we uh, turn to your word this morning, we pray that you would be present with us by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give us ears uh, to hear and uh, hearts to receive uh, the truth that you have for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Cross my heart, hope to die. Did you grow up with that? Oath. I don't know how long kids have been saying that kind of thing on schoolyards, playgrounds. I certainly grew up with it. Uh, when I was in grade school, it was a very serious oath. I don't know who said it first, but I did spot the phrase in the January 8, 1920 issue of the Chautauqua Advance newspaper in Chautauqua, Kansas. Those of you who get that paper may have seen that. But I'm sure it's much older than that. Now, tell me, if you utter that grave oath, but behind your back, you have your fingers crossed, what happens then? Every child knows that if your fingers are crossed, when you make a promise, no matter how sacred or serious, if your fingers are crossed, then all bets are off and the promise doesn't count. As we read in 2 Pharisees 3.16, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Blessed is the man who speaketh with fingers crossed, for he shall no wise be bound to his oath. I've known a few children and I've known a few elected officials who are experts in the book of Second Pharisees, particularly chapter 3, the so-called discourse on loopholes. I'm kidding, of course. The Bible is not about loopholes. Nothing made Jesus crazier than when the Pharisees and the experts in the law skirted the very clear spirit of the law by doing some fancy lawyering on the letter of the law. It is a shame when lawyers use their intelligence to subvert justice by mastering technicalities rather than by using their wisdom to discover what is right. But maybe we are all Pharisees and lawyers at heart. Even Peter, who was certainly no lawyer, said to Jesus, Lord, when someone won't stop doing wrong to me, how many times must I forgive them? Seven times? And of course, we all remember Jesus' answer, you must continue to forgive them even if they do wrong to you 70 times seven. 
Now, for those of you who are keeping a little ledger book for your husband, and you're thinking to yourself, he better watch his step. He's up to 489 times already, and the next time, pow. If that's what you're thinking, you're missing the point too. Jesus goes on to explain in that same passage that all of us have been forgiven so much by our Father in heaven that anything that we forgive one another is totally insignificant in comparison. That was Jesus' point. It's not about the number. So biblical religion is not about loopholes. And biblical religion really is always about telling the truth in every circumstance. We Christians really need to be people who keep their promises. As we read in verse 2 from Numbers chapter 30, if a man makes a special promise to the Lord or makes a promise with an oath, he must not break that promise. He must do everything that he said that he would do. Now, verses 3 through the end of that chapter that Ava read for us are all about, is all about the promises made by women. I think from our reading this morning, you can see that widowed women and divorced women are treated as completely individual, independent individuals. And the oath-keeping rule applies to them in the same way that it applies to the men. Married women or women still living at home with their fathers, however, are subject to the authority of their husbands or their fathers. These women are allowed to make oaths and they're obliged to keep the terms of their oaths, but their husbands or their fathers have a right to veto the vow when they first hear about it. If they don't veto it when they first hear about it, then the vow stands and it must be fulfilled. For example, in 1 Samuel, we read about Hannah, who had been barren up to that time, going to the temple and promising that if she were given a child, that she would dedicate the child to God as a Nazarite, and that he would serve in the temple for the rest of his life once he had been weaned. When Hannah's husband, Elkanah, first heard her vow, he could have vetoed it. The fact that Hannah did have a son, Samuel, and that Samuel was raised in the temple tells us that Elkanah agreed with Hannah and permitted the vow to stand. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on the principle of male leadership in the family, particularly in spiritual matters. And the commentators have a lot to say about this chapter in the book of Numbers and how it applies to Christians. And I'd be happy to share some of that material with you if you're interested. But I think what is most useful to us this morning is not to talk about the special case of the vows of women, but regarding the more universal principle that when we say that we're going to do something, we need to do it. This morning, I want us to think about why it is important for us to be people who keep their promises, for us to be people whose words are trustworthy, to be people who are honest, because the Bible has a lot to say about this. So let's start with the Ten Commandments. Two of the Ten Commandments are directly about telling the truth. 
Let me read the third and the ninth commandment for you in the ERV translation. Uh, during this sermon series through the book of Numbers, I've been using the ERV translation, the easy-to-read version, because it's very simple and because it's very clear. The third commandment says, You must not use the name of the Lord your God to make empty promises. If you do, the Lord will not let you go unpunished. That's about invoking the name of God when you make a vow... But then you don't keep the vow. Like when you swear, when you, when you say, I swear to God, I'll give you the money on Friday, and then you don't. That's a violation of the, of the third commandment. What we read in Numbers chapter 30 is just an expansion of the third commandment. It's a fuller explanation of the third commandment in a special case. The ninth commandment says you must not tell lies about other people. Now that sometimes is interpreted rather narrowly to mean uh, testimony in a court of law. And it certainly does apply in the court of law. But I believe that the Westminster divines were right in what they wrote about this commandment. In question 145 of the Westminster Larger Catechism, we, the, the question is this, what are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? Now, I'm going to read almost the whole answer. Uh, by the way, the, this, my, the text of my sermon is printed, and if you want that text, I would encourage you to take it home with you, because I think uh, what the Westminster uh, Confession says is actually very, very important and is worth our attention. Here, here's almost the full answer. The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing of truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing or overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, holding our peace when iniquity calls for either reproof from ourselves or complaint to another, speaking the truth unseasonably. There are times when we need to not say something. Or speaking the truth maliciously to a wrong end. Or perverting it to a wrong meaning. Or in the doubtful or equivocal expressions to prejudice the truth or justice. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring. Misconstructing intentions, words, or actions. Flattery, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too lowly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and the graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating sin when called to free confession. Unnecessary uncovering of infirmities, raising false rumors, 
receiving and countenancing evil reports, and stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair the deserved credit, or rejoicing in their disgrace or infamy, scornful contempt, fond admiration, breach of lawful promises. Okay, we can't touch on all of those topics, but that's a, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it goes through each of the Ten Commandments and kind of unfolds all the different things that are uh, entailed under the simple command. So this morning what I want to do is just pick up a couple of points from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And I want to start our reflections by thinking about the first sins that we have recorded for us in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan has tempted them using two lies. In Genesis 3, 4, and 5, we read, But the snake said to the woman, You will not die. God knows that if you eat the fruit from that tree, you will learn about good and evil, and then you will be like God. So first, Satan offers a bare-faced lie, you will not die. But then he offers a more subtle lie, you know, God is just jealous, and he doesn't want you to be wise like him. That's why he won't let you have that fruit. To use the language of the larger catechism, Satan misconstructs the intentions and the words and the actions of God. God gave the command to not eat from the tree because that's what would have been best for Adam and Eve. And Satan twists it around to make God look like a jealous or a stingy bully. You yourself might do something perfectly innocent. You might say something that was intended to help and someone else can take and twist that around so that you look like some kind of monster. That's one way of lying. And if you've ever been a victim of that kind of lie, it's because that person hates you for some other reason and wants to injure you. Satan, of course, hates God and he hates whatever God has made and so he twists the word of God around so that it insults God's dignity and so that it injures those who have been made by God. And then falling for this lie, Adam and Eve, when God comes looking for them, they do their own lying. Now they don't come right out and speak a falsehood, but they hide the truth and they shift the blame. They hear God in the garden and they run away. Because they don't want to be found out. They don't want him to know the truth. And when he asks them about what they've, done, what they've done, they point their finger at someone else. Quote, concealing the truth, and close quote, is a form of lying. Open quote, hiding, excusing, or extenuating sins when called to a free confession, close quote, is a form of lying. Both of these violate the ninth commandment. There are times when we're called to tell the truth about ourselves, and if that truth is uncomfortable, we're tempted to lie about it, either by covering 
or by pointing the finger at someone else, which is not good, which is not biblical, which is not Christian. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you might be healed. That's a commandment. Confess your sins to each other. To hide our sins from one another, to put up a false front and let people think that we're something that we're not, is a kind of silent lying. It is a violation of the ninth commandment, and it is a kind of lying that I have seen do a lot of damage. Not to other people, but to the person who's telling the lie. Because the problem with living behind the mask, the problem with hiding whatever secret sins that we're ashamed of, the problem with living that way is is that we are never then cured of those sins. It's like going to the doctor for your annual physical and not telling him about your shortness of breath and your dizzy spells. How can the doctor heal you or prevent you from dying? When we expose our sins to the light of day, and by the way, there's an appropriate time and a place to do this kind of thing in the life of the church. This is not the same as gossiping or sharing too much information. When we expose our sins to the light of day, that's when the grace of the gospel has an opportunity to go to work on us and we have an opportunity to get better. For some of us who are hiding behind masks that we've been wearing for a very long time, who have been, we will only be exposed to the light of day when catastrophe finally strikes, when we hit rock bottom. If you lie about the shortness of of your, if you lie about your shortness of breath, the truth of your heart condition may finally come to light in the back of an ambulance, which is a bad place to have that truth come out. So let me switch to the New Testament, because the New Testament says a lot about these things too. In the Sermon on the Mount, which I read from, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Jesus' point is that we should be the kind of people who are so trustworthy that we never have to swear an oath to make people believe us. We should be habitually honest. We don't need to puff ourselves up like we're something special, trying to impress those around us. What we need to do is to tell the clear and simple truth each time and every time. So why do we lie? Well, there are probably a lot of reasons, but I want to lift up two reasons. And these are actually the same reason. The first reason we lie is that we want others to think better of us than is really fair. We're fat and we're bald, but on our social media profile, 
We post a photo from our high school prom when we had beautiful hair and were in great shape. We have a spotty work history, but we pad our resume with inflated accomplishments and false credentials. We were dishonorably discharged from the army, but we show up at the 4th of July parade wearing medals we bought on eBay. My wife and I were at a dinner in Paris a few years ago, and we were seated at a table with a man who had a very elegant Van Dyke mustache, you know, goatee thing. And he had an even more elegant and aristocratic French hyphenated name. And he told us that he was the direct descendant of Napoleon III, and that he had a foundation that was trying to get the body of the former emperor returned to Paris. Apparently, poor Napoleon is lying in a churchyard in England. I was very impressed. Until years later, I learned that this man is no more a descendant of Napoleon than I am. We lie. Because we want people to think that we are more than we really are. Why do we do that? Well, maybe down deep we don't like who we are. Maybe we're not satisfied with who we are. Maybe we wish that we were something more, and so we lie. And when we lie, we steal honor that doesn't belong to us. We want to have something that we have not earned. A second reason that we lie is that we want others to think worse of someone else than is really fair. So in the first case, we lie because we want people to think better of us than is fair. And sometimes we lie because we want people to think worse of someone else than is really fair. You may have noticed that the answer that's given in the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, about the Ninth Commandment has a lot to say about what we would call gossip or slander. All prejudicing of the truth and the good name of our neighbors. Slander, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, scornful contempt, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of someone or endeavoring or desiring to injure that deserved credit. In the same way that we can lie to puff ourselves up, to make ourselves seem like more than we are, we can also lie and gossip to tear other people down. Maybe because we're envious of them. Maybe because we think that if others are honored, then we're not honored. But the problem is the same. In the first case, we steal honor that does not belong to us. And in the second case, we steal honor that rightly belongs to someone else. So what is the Christian answer to the problem of not telling the truth, the problem of not telling the truth about ourselves and about others. The Apostle Peter says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. The Apostle Paul says, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Honor one another above ourselves. That's the antidote to the second kind of lying, the lying that tears others down. If we honor others above ourselves, we won't be lying about them to tear them down. 
But what about that first kind of lying? The lying where we try to puff ourselves up and make ourselves more than we really are. Paul writes to the Romans, do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He writes to the Philippians, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Humility is the antidote to that first kind of lying, the lying that claims for ourselves honors that we don't really deserve. So what would it look like if we were to actually obey what the Bible says about how we should talk about ourselves and talk about other people? Well, I think the first consequence is is that we would be a whole lot nicer to be around. I mean, who would not want to be around people who spoke well of them, people who showed them the appropriate amount of respect and honor? Who would not want to be around people who guarded your reputation or spoke well about you behind your back? The truth is, we do enjoy the company of humble people, of people who are not putting up a front or putting on airs. It's much more relaxing to be around those kinds of people. A church full of humble people, a church full of people who consider others better than themselves, is a very attractive church. And on the other side of the equation, if we are content with who we are, if we are able to tell the truth about who we are and not feel the need to impress anyone else, that's also really good for us. Because it's exhausting to keep up the facade. Maybe you have some people in your life who really know who you are, who have seen you in your ugly moments, who know your failures and and your shortcomings, and they love you anyway. Well, those are your real friends. Why not give other people a chance to be that kind of friend to you as well? If we are afraid of rejection, if we are afraid that someone won't love us unless we have some kind of exalted reputation, then we need to drink in more deeply from the gospel, the gospel which assures us that we are infinitely valuable in the eyes of God. God knows us in our present condition. God knows us in our sin. God knows our history. And he loves us better than ourselves. You and I come to God with empty hands. We've got nothing to offer. We're like the prodigal son. We're filthy. We smell of pigs. And yet the father runs to meet us and he embraces us and he puts a robe of righteousness on us and he claims us as his own. And then the party begins. When we have known that kind of gospel love, the gospel love of God for an abject sinner, we are less desperate for the love of the world. We're less desperate for the love of people who only love us when we're beautiful. And when we find that love, we will be free. The truth will set us free. And that's worth any price. But now here's the funny thing. When we've known the gospel love of God that embraces us just as we are, when we can walk in humility with God and with others, we do in fact become beautiful people. People find us attractive. 
We've been called to a better way. We've been called to a way of truth and humility. It is a way of honoring and respecting others. And this way is the way which will bring us true joy. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, for your word we give you thanks. Seal its truth to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.